Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers. Kathleen Turner is an award-winning American actress and director, celebrated for her acclaimed work in film, television, and theater. With an over 40-year career, Kathleen's bold and brave choices as an artist has led to a groundbreaking body of work that has changed cultural perceptions of how women are portrayed on the screen and stage. Always insisting on playing by her own rules, the two-time Golden Globe winner and Academy Award nominee has created some of the most iconic performances in history. Kathleen Turner's extensive filmography includes her quintessential debut performance as Maddie Walker in Body Heat. Her other memorable films include Crimes of Passion, Romancing the Stone, Pritzi's Honor, Peggy Sue Got Married, and War of the Roses. On the Broadway and London stages, Kathleen is known for her intrepid performances, including such starring roles as Maggie in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and Martha in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, both for which she received Tony nominations. Additionally, she originated the role of Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate for the London and New York stages. We spoke intimately with Kathleen about her drive to challenge herself and her passion for reinvention, overcoming demons and struggles, her commitment to activism, which means just as much to her as her art, and why she'll never quit. We welcome Kathleen Turner to Art Laws. Kathleen, you had what most would consider a very unique upbringing. Your father was a U.S. diplomat, and you spent most of your childhood abroad. What were those early years like? Oh, I remember them very, very happily. Our first post was Canada, but I was really a bit too young to get much of that. But then when I was four, going on five, I guess, we were transferred to Havana, Cuba. And that was, I remember, an extremely exciting time because that was when Castro was coming to power. And ultimately, our family had to split up the women and children first out to Florida and the officers to follow. Then we had a couple of years in Washington, D.C. at state, and then five years in Venezuela, in Caracas, Venezuela, and then four years in London. So I had my high school years and really started studying theater in London, and that could not have been better. Well, what is it that made you want to be an actress in the first place from an early age? What sparked that idea? And what was it about acting that drew you? You know, I think after all these years, after 45 years in the business, it was books. It was just, I read all the time. I still do, whatever I can get my hands on, basically. And I think that then the imagination just continues where the book might have ended. And so that, that just fed me. I can imagine being among all these different cultures and people was a great training ground to be an actor. Do you feel that that was the case? Well, I think I've found over time that there are actually a lot of actors who shared a background where they moved a great deal. And I think you learn sort of to present yourself. And when you go to a new school or in my case, a new country, you learn a kind of presentation which comes in well for acting later. And also you are multilingual, and I imagine that really affects the way you approach and hear language and, and read and all of those things. Did you find that to be true? Well, I think so. I think so. My father 
used to say that if you have only one language, you have only one way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And I rather agree with that. It isn't a question really of translating so much as context. Mm -hmm. Right. What was the first play or what was the first experience that you saw that maybe pushed you in the direction of acting, I'm wondering? This is a bit of a mystery, but I know that I saw a ballet, the Washington Ballet, when we lived there. And that was pure enchantment. Of course, at that time, I did want to be a ballet dancer, but I got too tall too fast. Um, <laughs> but in any case, and then when we moved to Venezuela, they, I couldn't really get a good teacher. So had to give that up. But there in Venezuela, we, we had a choir at church and I guess school. And we had a bell choir. We used to travel with the bell choir around Venezuela. Uh, I think we even made a record for heaven's sakes. I don't, I won't swear to that. <laughs> but in any case, I don't remember. In Venezuela, we didn't have any theater. It wasn't until I got to London. I got to really experience it. So growing up in your family, did you see yourself as a rebel? Yes, always. <laughs> oh, yes. I was the only one who would really fight with my father. And, oh, heavens to Betsy, I remember in high school, we, the United States had gone under Nixon into Cambodia. And so I helped organize a march down Oxford Street for, with the American School in London. We shut down the school for a day. We, I mean, the high school anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, we staged this march down to the American embassy, which upset my father rather a lot. <laughs> <laughs> your father, though, was not very supportive of your being an actor. Is that true? Well, he knew that we would all have to support ourselves, that we had to make our own income, have our own careers, because there wasn't any family money or anything like that. And... I think he felt that acting or any, any one of the arts was a ridiculously iffy proposition. Hmm, right. Did you feel, I mean, going back to the idea of being a rebel, did you have to hide performance? Did you have to hide the fact that you were pursuing acting in any, in any way for your family? No, no, I didn't do that. I can recall that once when I was performing, um, oh my gosh, I remember it was Brian Friel's The Lover's at the American school in London where I went to high school, that my father drove my mother to the school, but he would not come in and watch the performance because that would be tacit approval. So my mom told me that she went out of intermission and he had his hands gripping the steering wheel. And she said, she's doing well, really, she's doing well. You lost your father at a very young age when you were 17. And I think this was when you were in London. You had to go back to Missouri to enroll in college. And that's where you found the theater group. And I'm just wondering, what did that theater group offer you at this time of great loss? Well, it just was all consuming. It just let me sort of bury myself away. I think that I figured out one year that there were only 14 nights when I was not either in rehearsal or in performance. So it was, it gave me a life. Everything I've read, you were born in Springfield, Missouri. So was this a return to your birthplace? I just haven't gotten a sense of how long you were Oh, there. yeah. No, my mom was visiting my grandparents on home leave when I was born. Oh. But we left there when I was about three months old. We would go back to visit my grandparents every two years at least on home leave. 
But no, I never thought I'd live there for heaven's sakes. But you did during college. Yes, I did. Was that a a real culture shock? Oh, you could say that. (laughs) Yeah, it was really tough. I couldn't get any international news. Everything was just local. It was, oh God, it was just, I felt cut off from everything. And it was terribly isolating and made me very unhappy. Did people treat you differently now that, you know, you were coming from this international background, you were maybe spoke a little different. Did people view you as the outsider? Oh, gosh, yes. No, I had quite a, a British and English accent. And what I didn't have, I put on, I think. Sort of protect <laughs> myself. Um, I think my first boyfriend told me that the first time he met me, he said, you know, how do you like it here? And I said something like, well, it's all right. But everyone's rather stupid, aren't they? <laughs> Not very popular. It seems like in the late 70s, you moved to New York and it's like so much happened all at once. I'm just, it, it was a momentous time for you. Can you talk about just leaving? I think at the time you were in Missouri, right? And you went from no, Missouri. I was in Baltimore. Oh, okay. My last year at University of Maryland, Baltimore. Yeah. I went there to work with Herbert Blau, who had had taken over the department. And he saw a performance of mine at uh, St. Louis at a festival and asked me to come work with him. I said, God, yes, you know. Anyway, yeah, it was pretty crazy. I, I had an apartment to share with a woman who'd already graduated from the college. So I had a, a place to go. And I, you know, right away, I went and got a job at a temporary employment agency so I would have some income. At six months, I got an off-off-Broadway play at Soho Rep uh, with uh, Jonathan Frakes. And then at, I guess, around 10 months, I got a soap opera, The Doctors, with NBC. And then around 11 months, I got... Gemini on Broadway. So I was going to the studio every morning at like seven or even earlier, I guess, shooting the soap opera and then going to the theater every late afternoon to do the show. That's insane. I mean, that the amount of opportunities so fast. I mean, most actors, it takes them it doesn't, years. It doesn't happen like that, really. It just right. doesn't. Yeah. Did you equate that to tenacity? Were you really, were, did you really hit the ground running? Were you really pursuing opportunities or did they sort of just come to you? Oh, I think I pursued, yes. Yeah. The playwright who wrote Mr. T, it was the, the play at Soho Rep, said that he turned to the director when I left and said, well, she's decided to take the role. <laughs> <laughs> Soon after that, the auditions for Body Heat came up. And oh, Maddie- several years, several years, I think. Oh, really? Um, okay. No, actually, you're right. Like two years, three, two and a half years, yeah. Well, Maddie Walker and Body Heat was a groundbreaking role for you that really put you on the map as both sex symbol and serious actress. Who is Maddie Walker to you and what made her tick? How did you approach her going into this role? Well, first of all, I was very timid about sexuality at that time. You know, if it hadn't been for all these lovely men telling me, no, I was sexy, I don't think I would have believed it. I kept thinking when we were shooting Body Heat that I would cast a smoldering glance at Bill Hurt and he would, and people would laugh. (laughs) (laughs) 
Anyway, Mary was a damaged woman. You know, she, I think, was incapable of love. And the little that we know about her in one scene when she speaks of herself, she's pretty tough on herself. I don't think she thinks that she's lovable or worthy of love, I might say. So she uses what tools she's got. She's no dummy. And she's understood how men can easily be used. I think that she really wants security more than anything else in the world and believes the only way to get it is by taking it from someone else. Hmm. It's funny because I, I rewatched Body Heat and I was just so struck by, I mean, it's 40, 40 years old, but it seems so fresh still. And it, I feel like films today don't take the risks that that, that film took. Oh, and not I'm, at all. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm wondering, do you feel it still resonates? Everybody, you know, whenever I mentioned you were on the show, everybody mentioned Body Heat. It's this film that resonates so much. Why do you think it still resonates today? Well, I think we were absolutely breaking ground at the time on how sexuality was portrayed in film and, and what was portrayed. In that, what ways would you say that? Well, we were more explicit than many mm -hmm. films at that time had ever been. In terms of full nudity, et cetera, is that? Yeah, yeah, in terms of, of being, of demonstrating sex and sexuality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was pretty brave stuff. And I think that the writing, of course, is there to support it. Also, women weren't necessarily the instigators at that time, 40 years ago. It wasn't mm -hmm. so accepted. I think that was a nice little shock element. Mm -hmm. Body Heat was also Lawrence Kasdan's first film. Tell us about the first scene you had to film and, and what that was like for you. Well, if I remember correctly, Larry thought that we would break all the ice and break crown by starting with the only scene that is full nudity, the one mm -hmm. in the boathouse. Mm -hmm. And I just, I remember thinking, oh God, couldn't I ease into this? I mean, we were, <laughs> we were literally meeting crew members, you know, I was like <laughs> dressed in a robe and shaking hands and saying, oh, your camera. Oh, I see, you know. Um, it was pretty tough. I think I, after this scene, I think I went off and sobbed for about half an hour. Oh. Wow. But what was the chemistry like between you and William Hurt? Was it something that was immediate or well, no, see, all right, one of the things that Larry did and does, as far as I know, is we had full rehearsal, four weeks rehearsal, hmm. which meant that Bill and I, you know, were only paid for two because the studio wouldn't pay for more than two, but it was worth it to us. Mm -hmm. And so many people don't think, a Coppola did, we had four weeks rehearsal there in Peggy Sue, but so many directors don't understand the value of it so that when you're actually on set and with a full crew, you know what you're doing, you know what the shots are, you know, you know, you don't waste all this time trying to find out if something works. You already know this. So we had a good amount of rehearsal to really, to really understand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's that the great scene in that film to me is when he can't have you and he breaks through the window to get to you and i thought that was such a such an amazing choice i'm just curious about that scene was that something that was in the script was that improvised was that it seems so oh, no. immediate that wrong. was that was absolutely in the script 
But the problem with that scene was that it called for a steady cam. And steady cams were just being developed, were just being invented really then. Mm -hmm. And so the damn thing kept breaking down. <laughs> so we, you know, we'd get the shot through the front window and then we get the shot when he goes over to one side and it comes back and then gets over to the other side before he picks up the chair and smashes the window. And it kept breaking before every take was completed. Huh. And it had to be one take, one continuous take, not cuts. Right. You know, for the tension. And I think when we finally got it and he came charging through, Larry went, cut. He said, the sun's up. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. God. So we like, well, I had to pick it up from that place the next night oh. after a full night of tension and frustration. And oh, God, I don't know how we did that. As an actor, where do you begin with that? How do you get you back, back into that mindset? You, you go back to where you felt when you cut. Yeah. Everything that had built up to that moment. Right. Hold on to that and bring it back. So yeah. in terms of the chemistry, I'm, I'm still curious. Was that something that built in those rehearsal processes or was it something that you felt instantly? Well, I think both. I think both. We certainly explored it during the rehearsal process mm -hmm. but at the same time if it's not there to begin with I don't know that you can create it yeah so I suppose it must have been there you've worked with some of the great directors of cinema from Lawrence Kasdan to Carl Reiner Ken Russell John Huston Francis Ford Coppola to name only a few who do you think you learned the most from and enjoyed working with the most of these filmmakers Oh, well, I learned from everyone. I don't think in terms of most or least, or I don't think that way, like listing. Well, I just learned a lot from all of them. I, I'm not sure I can. Does anything stand out? And just in terms of like lasting impression. Well, Houston, Houston taught me the power of a continual long moving shot that you mm -hmm. could not cut into, both as the power of a director so that your choice could not be cut. Mm -hmm. And because of the suspense inherent, I mean, unlike, for example, TV now, where there's a cut every, what, seven to 15 seconds? Yeah. You know, this is the power of holding a shot is very, very strong. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I'm curious, you know, you work with two generations of the Coppola family, Francis Ford Coppola and Sofia Coppola. How do those experiences differ or were they alike in any way? I'm just curious about the two yeah. generations. No, they're very different. They're very different. They're very different people, Lord knows. Francis is much more outgoing and will be on his feet on the set, you know, saying, we sort of just throwing ideas at you and stuff. Sophia would sort of be more laid back and, and be, uh, you know, you'd say, okay, I've got an idea of how I'd like to do it. She said, show me. You know, show me. And then basically she'd sort of say, yes, no, more or less, or no, I don't think you're on the right track. So Sophia was much more passive in a lot of ways than Francis. But they both had a very good idea, I think, of what they wanted. What happened? One point Francis said he wanted to direct from the trailer. And what did you say to that? <laughs> well, I didn't last. He had this streamlined trailer then with screens in it. And so, and the camera was hooked up to the screen in his trailer and he wanted to sit in there and, and watch from his trailer rather than on set. And 
well, I said, well, how will you direct then? <laughs> and he said, oh, he would just, you know, walkie-talkie, the first AD who would pass on the direction. I said, no, no, I don't mind. I'll tell you, you go direct in your trailer and I'll go act in mine. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Too great. So what happened then? He said, well, then you're telling me I have to be on set all the time that you're on set acting. And I said, yes. He said, well, does the opposite work? Does you have to be on set just when I'm directing? And I said, all right. Which I bitterly regretted because <laughs> although there were very few scenes I was not in, I really could have used the nap. Oh. Right, right, right. <laughs> do you prefer a director to be really hands-on or do you like having leeway to explore when you're in the middle of a performance? Oh, there's no easy answer. That depends on the script. That depends on the personalities. Hmm. You know, if I have a good partner, then no, I don't need the director so much in terms of acting, you know? Right. Really, there's no way to summarize that. Mm -hmm. So you and Michael Douglas co-starred in three successful films, the first being Romancing the Stone in 1984. And recently, you joined the cast of The Kaminsky Method as his ex-wife. There's always a raw, organic chemistry between you two. What do you attribute this to? Well, I think we just really like each other, or maybe love each other in a sense. We're easy. We're easy with each other. And it's just like, oh, hello, you. And you, ah, hello, you. <laughs> it just works like an old friend. Mm-hmm. I felt that with Kaminsky Method. It felt like when you came on, it felt like you had already been on the show. I don't know if that that describes it. Like you felt like you naturally meshed with him, with the cast. I just, that chemistry is just so unique. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how to analyze it, um, but it's there. I know. We was feel it, it. Was it there from day one in Romancing the Stone or was it something that had to develop? I think that developed over time. I mean, I think... Again, we had some good rehearsal, but we couldn't rehearse on set, you know, I mean, on location. So it wasn't really real until we got down to Mexico. It was so difficult. It was so desperately physically difficult that I think that just knocked out any pretense. You just went, okay, let's just survive this. Yeah, I mean, you did your own stunts in that movie, which is rare, right? I mean... It's as much as they would let me, but mm -hmm. I mean, they wouldn't let me do everything, of course. And what was that about? Why did you choose to do your own stunts? Oh, I was very athletic. I was a good athlete. And, yeah. and I really loved the thrill of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you are such a physical actress, which makes you stand out in my mind. I just always have noticed that about every performance. You really embody these roles and it's a beautiful thing. And I thank wonder you. that, yes, you're welcome. And it's thank you for sharing that with all of us, all the world. But I was going to say that, do you think that also comes from training in London early on? And I know you said you wanted to be a dancer, yeah. ballet dancer. Did any of that? or was? Well, is it I, think, I think it comes from being athletic. Yes. I mean, I was into sports. I was into volleyball. I was into swimming. I loved sports. I just really loved doing it. Tennis. Mm -hmm. So my body has always been, until I got ill, very much an expression of everything I am, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Before we get to that, I just want to mention one more collaboration. Your collaboration with John Waters, 
on Serial Mom. Um, <laughs> this this is a film that people love. I love it. And, you know, he famously works with that Dreamlanders troupe. I was just, what was that like coming into that world and working with John? You kind of have to just suspend judgment, you know? <laughs> um, but I remember when I finally finished reading this script at home in, in New York City, and I called John and I said, I don't know. I don't know. I really have, I have to know how you're going to shoot this thing because it could be either outrageously, ridiculously funny, or it could just be a gore fest. And I don't do gore fests. You know? <laughs> Next thing I knew, my doorbell was ringing, and he had jumped on a train and come up to convince me of how he would shoot the film. And I said, okay. People were absolutely against it. I mean, all my people, everyone, everyone was like, no, you can't. You can't do this. You can't do this. You know, you're an A actress and he's a B director and it'll hurt you to say this. I don't know. I, it was just silly. I mean, I have I've never repeated myself if I could help it. So the idea of not doing something new is just ridiculous. Do people still come up to you and talk to you about that movie? Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I get a lot is no white shoes after Labor Day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. People viewed him as a B director because... He came out of the art world and he was really, truly an, a, a fine artist. Well, and think about him. Think about him. I mean, he built an entire film history, a filmography, mm -hmm. yeah, out of Baltimore without any studio money and got, got released. What he did is really almost impossible. Mm -hmm. And yet he did it. And it's truly a unique vision and his own thing. We're still very good friends. I love him dearly. Do you you do that summer camp, the John Waters summer camp? I did. Oh, do you know my about God, this, Robin? No, I didn't know about it. Oh yeah, he rents this camp for like a long weekend and asks you know friends or people who've been in his films to come for a period for to come to talk or just hang out or be there for his. <laughs> outrageous absolutely outrageous i can't imagine having you and john waters as camp counselors that's the best like, oh we're very funny it's insane yeah and fun i bet so you became a mother at the height of your career what was motherhood like for you in the midst of this demanding career wow well you know when i did uh, who framed roger rabbit i was pregnant i was gloriously pregnant in fact <laughs> the last day i was supposed to record Jessica I went into labor so I'm in the delivery room at NYU going call the studio tell them I won't be in today <laughs> so that was pretty silly I went back to work I think around at four months after when she was four months old to do accidental tourist because I wanted very very much to do that film you know with Bill and Larry yeah. and also to uh, the material and Tyler's books I mean I think I think it's still the only book that she's allowed to be translated to film, mm. which was a great honor in a way. Mm -hmm. But that was tough. That was tough because I, you know, until Rachel started nursery school at, at five, really, she traveled with me. She was with me always mm -hmm. on location, wherever I went. She and the nanny. Yeah. The hardest thing was when I had to leave her in New York with her dad and just and go off without her. Mm -hmm. mm. 
right around, I believe, right around the time of serial mom, you were diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Right after. Yeah. Right, right was, after. Well, a year after. It took, took them a year to diagnose it. So there were symptoms you were experiencing and you just weren't, you weren't sure what it was? Yeah. Things like my, my feet toward the end of the filming of Serial Mom got so swollen, so huge. I, I forced myself into the shoes that the character had been wearing because we couldn't afford to buy new shoes. But it was bad. It was bad, but I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. One doctor told you that eventually you would never walk again. I'm just... Oh, yeah. What did that feel like? What was the toll of, of that psychologically? I can only imagine you having such a terrifying. Physical... Yeah. Terrifying. As I've said, my physicality, my, my body was so much a huge part of who I was and how I thought of myself. Mm-hmm. That contemplating not being able to, to move it, not being able to say to myself, jump across the room, yeah. was, I don't know, who I could be. So we just work. You do what you can. I had a, a lot of operations to cut out disease joints or to replace them. And you just keep working, working, working and keep moving. Hmm. It's not good. It's not good, but it is what it is. Yeah. All right. And at the time you were very open about turning to alcohol to help with the pain. How did the industry and the press? Well, it wasn't help? just that. It wasn't just that, honey. It was- yeah. Also, they would hire drunks, but they wouldn't hire someone with a mysterious disease. Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't really know what autoimmune diseases were or what the effect would be. And it was easier and more accepted to say that I was drunk. I would drop a glass because my hand couldn't hold it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't grip it. And they could look at each other and nod and go, uh-huh, uh-huh. well, there she goes again. That was better, maybe more. They could hire someone like that, but not someone with a disease that no one understood. Hmm. So are you saying that alcohol wasn't part of the picture? No, I did. I did abuse it, yes, to great relief at times. Mm -hmm. But no, that was not the primary reason. Mm -hmm. So did you seek help for those issues also? or? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I one thing that rheumatoid arthritis taught me is to always accept help. I mean, if somebody comes up and says, can I help you? Say yes. Then figure out what you need. But just say yes. Right. right. So it sounds like a, that there was a period where the industry and the press mishandled the changes that you were going through. Oh, terribly. It was very hurtful. Yeah. And how did you respond ultimately? Beyond the because your life is on the line. You can't keep suffering these slings and arrows. You know, you're talking about being able to walk. The hell with what they think. Yeah. Hmm. You're resilient. That's for sure. And yeah. we see that. What do they say about oh, dying or something? I mean, what choices do you have? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. And it takes a certain type of human being to... No, that is true. I could have stopped, but I don't know how to stop. It's interesting because I think a big part of conquering your illness was returning to the stage. And then I think back at when, you know, you lost your father and the theater was there for you at that time. I'm wondering, what did the theater offer you this time? Well, I think that's a good coalition. 
I mean, good putting together there. Yeah, I think the first play I could do going back was uh, Indiscretions with the Cocteau. And one reason I guess I thought I could do it was because the character is a diabetic and the first and the third act take place in her bedroom. The implication, I guess, being in her bed. But I could never lie down in that damn bed. I was like, <laughs> I used the bed as a trampoline. I, used it as, I just, oh, hell. Looking back on that experience, though, I do have one regret, and that is that I didn't realize that the medications were affecting my mind, my memory. I kept having trouble with the exact wording of some lines. So it was driving me crazy because I, I would go in two hours early every day and have my dresser run lines with me and everything. And then I would get out on the stage. And of course, I didn't realize it was the medication because as soon as I was able to stop that medication, I never had a problem again. Mm-hmm. But it was difficult and it made it difficult with some of the cast, you know, who felt that I was not, I don't know, trying hard enough. I don't know. Did they know about what you were going through with the illness? No, I didn't know. Oh, they oh, knew did the cast. The, oh, they knew about the RA. Yeah. But they didn't know about the medication. I didn't realize that right. then. Right. Huh. You've spoken often about wanting to play Martha in Edward Albert's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf from the time you were in your 20s, and you decided you wanted to play her at 50. If you dig deep, what was it about Martha that made you want to play this role? Uh, oh. Well, actually, that's pretty easy. Anger. Uh Anger. Well, if you look at Martha, and with most really powerful characters, you go through, I go through stages where I want to play her. I'm looking at her. I mean, like, say, Maggie and Cat and Hot Tin Roof or something, and you're thinking, all right, look at this juicy stuff. Mm -hmm. Then you start to get angry with her. Why is she behaving so stupidly? I mean, why is Martha drinking to excess like this? Why is she treating George this way? Wait, and then you start to fill in her life. And that was 1962. Mm-hmm. She was a woman of ambition, of intelligence, of imagination. And yet no woman was president of a university at that time. No woman, I think, had tenure at that time. So Then she married a man who worked very hard to remain an associate professor for 17 years. I mean, you really do have to work to stay there anyway. And then she couldn't have children. So she had this empty house. And so what are are her options to host faculty wives teas? Damn right she's angry. Mm -hmm. Mm. So as a young 20-year-old or 20-something, did you connect with that anger as a woman or... I think anger has a hell of a lot to do with women and with me mm-hmm. at the unfairness of it all. Yeah. And yet it seems like you've bucked against that throughout your career and chosen really strong roles as women. Yes, I will not. There's a basic rule that if the character, if you take the character that they want me to play, you take that out of the script. Does this story change? Is it fundamentally changed? Or is she just an ornament, mm-hmm. an accessory? I won't play accessories. The character has to be essential. 
Mm-hmm. Hmm. I read that you had fought to make Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. You staged a reading when Albie didn't yeah. want to do it. I mean, so you, I think a lot of people should know about that. I mean, how did you convince him <laughs> to make it happen? Well, I, I took his producer, uh, Elizabeth McCann. I took her out to dinner at the Palm. I was trying to sweet talk her. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, but she let me know during the evening that she didn't think that Edward was interested in another production, at least not yet. I mean, he had one in New York every sort of generation before. Originally, it was Uta Hagen, and then it was Colleen Dewhurst. And so there hadn't been one in my generation. But Edward, you know, just had the goat open and everything. And she felt that he didn't want to be thought of just for his old, what he called old works. So I asked her, she just set a meeting, set a lunch or something, just a meeting where I could meet him, I thought, with the chance to, to talk to him about this. And um, she said, yeah, she could do that. So she did arrange a lunch for the three of us. We didn't really talk about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf during the lunch, though Edward knew that that's what I wanted. At the end of the lunch, he said, so what do you want? I said, I want to read Martha for you. I just, I want to read her. And he went, all right. So he wanted Anthony Page, who directed for him in England. And I wanted Bill Irwin for George. And Why Bill him. Irwin? Wait, because that's an unusual choice for George. Oh, well, George is brilliant. He has to be brilliant. You can see Bill's brain working. It's just amazing, fast and sharp and clear. And I wanted funny. Mm -hmm. And one thing I said to Edward was I didn't think anyone had ever realized the humor in the play. Mm -hmm. And I still believe that. And But I think we did. And Bill is a brilliant, brilliant physical comedian. Oh, no, he was perfect. Yeah. Hmm. So you had this reading you were saying and yeah people tell me after the fact people told me that they were looking at edward and throughout the first act his face changed completely and he came up to me at the end of the first act when we had a break he said i have not seen anything like this since uda hagen and i being extremely nervous and cocky Said, yeah, yeah, and you've only seen one act. <laughs> At which point I really thought I should shoot myself, but um, anyway, it went well. I just, uh, again, sort of in line with your putting together that reading, you have also directed a lot of theater. And I bring up Killing a Sister George, which was a great experience for my brothers um, and I. And you've done so much work in that capacity. Is there an advantage in being an actor when you step into the role of director? I think there he is. I think, you know, when I first directed the Beth Henley play, we brought it to New York with Sarah Paulson and Lily Rabe and Lily Rabe and anyway. Crimes of the Heart. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Crimes of the Heart. I, uh, I was a little worried that I might have difficulty letting go of my acting, you know, so, so that I would want an actor to do it a certain way that I saw it. But in fact, that didn't happen at all. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't find myself at all interpreting for the actor. 
just for the production. And I got so fascinated by, oh my gosh, the details of, of lighting, of set, of costume, of, you know, know that that buzz is not blue enough, you know? I mean, <laughs> we're like, really, Turner? Anyway, no, I've, I find it fascinating. And I seem to have the ability to really grasp the entire production, mm-hmm. which I'm very glad for. You know, you've done so much Broadway and theater. Did you learn anything about yourself as a director? Well, I have to say that I found I'm, I'm really quite demanding. I mean, I, in terms of professionalism, I expect everyone to be there on time. I expect them to be prepared. I expect them to treat each other with respect. I think the director sets the tone of a production. And evidently, I don't, I, I don't have much humor about that. <laughs> <laughs> You also directed a film, and I'm curious what that was like and if you ever want to do that again. Yeah, I think I will. I think I'll do that again. One of the hugest differences with that is that as a director, you work months of pre-production and then months of post-production. Mm-hmm. So it is a question of coming in and shooting it and walking away as, as you do as an actor. I was afraid I, I would find that a bit tedious, but I... I was working with an editor who was a friend mm-hmm. and was teaching me about editing at the same time. So, you know, literally at that time, it wasn't, it wasn't digital. So it was frame by frame, which I could see becoming tedious, but I, I did not find it so because I was learning so much. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it seems like the story really comes together often in the editing room. Yeah, good or bad. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So if you look back on the roles that you've chosen throughout your career, do you see any common themes or threads in the characters from say Martha or Maggie or Maddie Walker or even the nun in the play High? Oh, well, what I say that it's got to be essential. I suppose in a way these are all centerpieces are not the only they're not the only piece uh, essential to a, a production but it's certainly a co-anchor you know co-lead the quality of the writing it has to be it has to be playable I, one thing I have learned over the years is that an actor can't make a piece good just by their acting it's got to be there it's got to support the actor. You can be the best actor in the world, and if it's not there in the script, it's just not going to get there. And that took some learning. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, you've been a chairperson for Planned Parenthood. You've been a board member for City Meals. You've worked with Amnesty International. What and you... people for the American Way. Ah, okay. okay. I've been a board member for about 36 years now, yeah. With Norman Lear, right? Is he? Yes, it of... is. Yeah. Protection of the First Amendment and watchdog of the religious right. Mm-hmm. Or so, we were bigger than that now, actually, yes. It seems like you, just like you do with your work, you throw yourself into activism. And I'm just wondering, what fuels you as an activist? Oh, I think that that's almost as important to me as my work. Hmm. Again, the unfairness. And, and just the sense that if you can do something, how can you not? I mean, I've talked to people and I've, for example, taking them on a meal delivery or something for City Meals on Wheels. And they say, oh my God, you know, that was an amazing experience. 
and I'm so glad it's being done, and and you say, well, so then you're going to to become more involved. Uh, well, no, no, you know, I don't really, I don't really need to do it. And you go, you don't need to do it. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> so if you could do anything now, sky's the limit, what would you do? Well, I'm really intrigued right now of expanding my role as a teacher mm -hmm. that I have found it's incredibly satisfying to work with people, you know, trying to find their way through material. And when the eyes light up, you know, it's like, oh, yes, I think it's something I'm good at. And I want, I want to pass it on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you've written a book on acting as well, yeah. right? Yeah. What's the name of your class at NYU? I remember it being something. That's when I teach uh, juniors and seniors in college. And that course is called Practical Acting, Shut Up and Do It. <laughs> That's great. Do you work with professionals outside of college as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, the, the course I'm working with now, uh, Studio One-on-One, -on -one, these are all people who are out there trying to get work, you know, and mm -hmm. that's that's called get the fucking job. Yeah. <laughs> that's the best. These are the best acting course titles I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How can people take your course? How can people find it? Uh, through one on one. Through, OK, that's great. What's now and what's next? Ah, well, I just finished a film called The Estate. We shot in. Um, in New Orleans with Tony Collette and Anna Ferris and David Duchovny. It was, oh, what a fun it's cast. A, it's a, it's a great it's a, cast. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's a comedy. It's really, it's written by that guy who, who did a Death at a Funeral, the British one. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty silly. <laughs> so just on that, I'm going to take a vacation. And then I have a little film... I was going to do with Bill Hurt. Oh, wow. Yeah, but before he got so ill. Uh, oh. So now that's kind of up in the air. We'll see. Mm -hmm. huh. So at the end of this, we do this thing called the quick draw. Six questions, 60 seconds, one word answers. Are you game? I'll try. <laughs> All-time favorite movie. Guess who's coming to dinner? Favorite artist. Uh, uh, we'll come back, but I, I know who it is, but we'll come back. Favorite song? Favorite piece of music would be Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto in B-flat minor. Favorite leading man? No, won't answer that. <laughs> no, not fair. Least favorite leading man. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Do you want to answer that one? No. <laughs> okay best book you've read in the past year oh gosh i read a lot you know what i'm gonna go with this sonnets because i go back to that every so often and it never never tires me shakespeare hmm. sonnets yeah favorite guilty pleasure uh, <laughs> kung fu movies <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen everything everywhere all at once? No, 
Do you, I have you seen the new one? It just came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have no, to see I, it. I love her. My God, she's amazing, isn't she, Michelle? She's amazing. Yeah. You have to see this movie. It's your yeah. it's next level. It's great. Kathleen, thank you so much. This was so wonderful to talk to you. You're an art law. Okay. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Kathleen. Thank you so much. Art Laws is produced by Alex Zappa and Robin Rosenfeld. Music is by Voidcore. And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Follow us on Instagram at Art Laws Pod. And subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Bye.